The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. So let's bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer so you can use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have this morning to gather together as believers in a free nation to study your word. We thank you for the freedoms that our Constitution uh, guarantees us. We thank you for... Uh, this nation that has always taken a stand for liberty. We continue to pray for our leadership, for our president, for members of Congress, for the administration, for military leaders, that you would give them wisdom, that they might make wise and proper decisions that would continue to uh, protect us and give us security, ultimately recognizing that you are the one who uh, protects and gives security to this nation. Father, we pray for this church, that you would continue to use it to reach people with your word. Uh, continually we are reminded of how the Internet ministry and the tape ministry is reaching the entire world, that because of the Internet, these messages are going throughout the world. It's a tremendous missionary operation. We pray that you would continue to uh, provide uh, hearers for your word, those who are truly positive to, to the truth. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that you would uh, give us the uh, wisdom and the courage to apply these things in our lives, that we might have the objectivity necessary under the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit to to see where the uh, principles of your word apply in our own lives, that we might continue to exchange the human viewpoint in our souls for the divine viewpoint of your word, that we might advance to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for those of you who were not here the first hour, the reason I am wearing my uh, doctoral robes is because when I was in California last week, uh, or we uh, had a graduation ceremony at the end of the conference, and the reason we are doing it there is because we have worked out a graduate program for the participants at the WHW conference so that through Faith Seminary they can uh, work toward a degree. And we had uh, seven men uh received master's degrees last week, and then I received my doctorate of ministry. And so I thought I would wear my doctoral robes. You know, when you get to this point, you want, if you got it, flaunt it. And so uh, uh, it's, uh, you know, when you've gone through all that work and waited all those years, then that's uh, 
why I'm doing this. Also, it sort of adds a little prestige to the whole process. Now, somebody asked me the question, said, well, what do we call you now? Well, my standard line is I don't care as long as you call me in time to eat, but uh, there is proper protocol, and I know that people don't always understand all the fine points of etiquette. The proper formal address, like if you have a somebody in the family who is um, getting married or you're, you're, you're printing out a formal invitation, then that is to be addressed to a pastor as Reverend so-and-so or Pastor so-and-so. If they have a doctorate degree, then it, the proper title is Reverend Doctor. Now, that's not what you call me personally. That's just the formal written address. And then, uh, of course, you, you dre- the address is Dr. Dean or Pastor Dean. And that is now and has been actually been appropriate ever since my dissertation was accepted last May. But that is, uh, that is the appropriate and proper protocol. And it's important to understand these things in our life. We live in a culture that has been in rebellion against authority and tradition and any kind of formality for the last 30 or 40 years. And the rebellion against any kind of formality and tradition is a manifestation and a reflection of a rebellion against uh, authority that when you have people who have titles and you start calling them by their first name, now there's always informal circumstances where that's appropriate, but in formal settings you call them, address people by their proper title, or you go to the doctor, you should address them by their proper title, doctor so-and-so, or uh, whatever the position is, because that emphasizes something that they have earned, their position in society and respect for that office that they hold, and that is important. And when you don't do that, it, it really flows from the idea that these things are not significant and everybody's really equal and these things don't matter. And that's typical communist Marxist type of thinking. So we have to always guard against these things. And there's a proper place for protocol and a proper place for uh, recognition of these kinds of things. And you need to teach that to your children, that they need to learn how to address uh, people in authority under the right titles. That's why we try to train the kids in prep school to address their teachers as Mr. or Mrs. and using the last name as opposed to the first name because that is just, you know, we don't want to uh, break down that that authority structure and relationship in teaching children uh, good manners and respect for authority. So having said that, we need to move on to more important matters. That is to study the Word of God. So open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. And one other thing I want to uh, make note of this morning, and that is that we had a work day yesterday, and we had a, I think, a pretty, for the kind of work that we had to do, we had a good turnout. It, it wasn't the same kind of work that we had back in on our spring work day, which involved a lot of uh, unskilled labor. We had a lot of skilled work that needed to be done yesterday, and we've had just a tremendous uh, uh, response and work effort put out by a number of people. Uh, Ken Tiviage has been down here every night this week tearing out the bathrooms, and, and uh, Joe Morse has been down here almost every night helping him, and I saw Jim down here, uh, Sexton down here one night. And then there were a number of people down yesterday, and I know they didn't they didn't uh, leave until about 11:30 last night. And so there's just been a tremendous effort put forth by a lot of people. And when you're a church the size of ours, 
you do not always have the privilege and opportunity due to finances to be able to afford to do all the technical work that this old building demands. And we are just thankful to the Lord that we have uh, men in this congregation who have the kinds of uh, skills, I'm not one of them, have the kind of skills to come down and do the electrical work and the plumbing work and the carpentry work and that they that is a real function of their ambassadorship and their Christian service. And we are thankful that they have not only the ability but also the, the time and the willingness to make those uh, sacrifices to come down here and do that kind of work because that re- is really what keeps this old building together. And there's still a lot that needs to be done because, as Jim announced earlier, the bathrooms still aren't complete, but at least they're uh, partially functional. But things will be a lot better once that's finished. Okay, 1 John 5:14. We are in the final section of 1 John, starting in 3b. We have the conclusion to this epistle where John is tying up some loose ends and emphasizing some of the points that he has made throughout this epistle. And in these two verses, we have specific reference to uh, application in the area of prayer. 1 John 5.14 we read, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will... He hears us. Now, verse 15 reads, If we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. These two verses combine to to form one of the greatest prayer promises that we have in the New Testament, that we can have confidence that God hears us and answers us. That's the point of this of this these two verses. We can have a confidence that God hears us. When we look at verse 14, and we have a third-class conditional clause, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, the point that is being emphasized in a conditional clause is what's called the apodosis, and that is the second clause, the the then clause, although you don't have the word then here, but in most uh, conditional clauses you have an if clause, which is called the apodosis, And that's followed by a then clause or the result of the fulfillment of the condition. If you were to diagram this sentence or diagram any sort of conditional clause, the main clause that is emphasized as your, as your main line statement is the, uh, apodosis. That is the point that John is making here. This is the confidence that we have in him that he hears us. Now, there's a condition that must be fulfilled before he hears us, but if that's fulfilled, the point that John is making is we can have confidence, we can have a certainty that he hears us. So before we get any further into this verse and into the doctrine of prayer, we need to look first at the concept of confidence, especially as it relates to the epistle of 1 John. First point, confidence is the Greek word parasia. The Greek word parasia, and it looks like this in the Greek. P-A-R-R-E-S-I-A. Parasia. And it is used in the Gospels. In fact, in all but one instance, it is used with, of, uh, of Jesus. 
But in the Gospels, it is primarily used of making a public statement or publicly affirming something. And that has more to do with its uh, meaning in classical Greek. In classical Greek literature, and remember the period for classical Greek, uh, spoken classical Greek, was in the area 5th and 4th century B.C. And in Greek literature, the meaning of parasia had uh, more to do with political freedom, specifically the freedom of speech. It had to do with the right to make one's thoughts known, to say whatever you wanted. And it was the privilege of the citizen in the Greek polis, the Greek city-state, to say what, to have the freedom to say what he believed. It emphasized political liberty, and therefore the idea was that since you had freedom of speech, you were confident you could say whatever it was you wanted to say without fear of reprisal, without fear of punishment, without fear of being thrown in jail or any other uh, negative consequence. It emphasized the right of the citizen to express his opinions, his opinions freely. So it came to mean uh, candor and straightforwardness. By the time you get to the Koine period, the word has changed its meaning to emphasize the concept of boldness or confidence. Boldness or confidence. For example, in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 12, uh, Paul makes a statement that is similar to what we're going to see in 1 John 2, 28. In 2 Corinthians 3.12, Paul says, Having such a hope, and I remind you that the word hope means confident expectation from the Greek word elpis. So we could translate that, Having such a confident expectation, we exercise boldness. Because we have this certain expectation, we can today be confident, not like Moses, who used to veil his face. So there the contrast is between the modus operandi of the church age believer and that of the Old Testament believer who did not have direct access, face-to-face access with God. So because of that, we have confidence. We have uh, boldness to come into the presence of God. So from this, we conclude the principle that confidence is based on positional truth and secondly, on our experiential abiding. Confidence begins with positional truth. We have to know that we are in Christ because in Christ we are made both priests and ambassadors. This is why we can come boldly before the throne of grace. We can have confidence in prayer because of our position in Christ. He is our high priest, and we'll get into a discussion on the royal high priest, on the royal priesthood of the believer, uh, before we're done this morning. So confidence is based first on our positional relationship with Jesus Christ, and secondly, on our experiential abiding. As we'll see, if you're not abiding with Christ, which is the major emphasis in 1 John, in the main body of the epistle, if we're not abiding in Christ, we're not walking by the Spirit, if we're not filled with the Spirit, 
then there is no basis for confidence. It's just a false confidence. And unfortunately, that's what characterizes too many believers today. They have all kinds of confidence in God, but they don't understand anything about the spiritual dynamics for the believer in the church age. They don't understand anything about confession of sin. They don't understand anything about walking by the Spirit. They don't understand anything about abiding in Christ. And if they're into various forms of of uh, false doctrine, such as lordship salvation, then they have completely misconstrued these terms. And as a result, the more terms you misconstrue and distort, the more distorted your understanding of the spiritual life will be. And if your basis, your foundation for the spiritual life is askew, then everything else you do will be askew. And one of the greatest misunderstandings that we find today is that people who think that morality has something to do with spirituality. And morality doesn't have a thing to do with spirituality. Any unbeliever can be moral. There are many unbelievers who live moral lives. They have a a measure of establishment integrity. They're honest. They're hardworking. And their sin natures, they have a trend toward uh, asceticism and towards uh, self-righteousness and legalism. And so they follow that trend. You have many religious unbelievers, just as you had religious unbelievers called Pharisees in the New Testament. The Pharisees, for the most part, were unbelievers, and they were self-righteous. They were extremely moral. But Jesus said, your righteousness has to exceed that of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And that just blew everybody away. Because they, the common person thought that no one was more spiritual. No one was more righteous than the Pharisees. And the point that Jesus is making is that the righteousness that impresses God is not one that comes from man, but one that is given to man, one that is imputed to man by God. In fact, it's his own perfect righteousness. And so... We have to understand that the righteousness that gives us a standing before God is an imputed righteousness, first of all, and secondly, that we have to be walking by the Spirit, that the Christian life is a supernatural way of life. Therefore, the means of the spiritual life are not a means that an unbeliever can follow. Now, unbelievers can do all kinds of things. They can be involved in religious operations. They can be involved in ritual. They can live moral lives. They can be honest. They can... They can be faithful to their spouses. They can not lie. They can have upright uh, business dealings. But that doesn't mean that it impresses God at all. Scripture says in Isaiah 64, 6, that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So we have to understand that our confidence can't be based on anything that we do. It must be based on that supernatural walk that is unique for the believer in the church age. This is what John is emphasizing, and we saw this back in 1 John 2.28, where John said, Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. A couple of things to note about that verse in terms of confidence. First of all, confidence is uh, antithetical to shame. Confidence is antithetical to shame, and confidence is based on a relationship with him defined as abiding in Christ. So that when we have 
uh, a life in time abiding in Christ, that means that in the future, the judgment seat of Christ, we have confidence. So confidence is a consequence of abiding in him. Furthermore, 1 John 3.21 gives us another look at John's use of the word uh, parousia. There he states, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Now, just a note for a corrected translation, heart there does not refer to the emotions. It does not refer to the literal physical heart. It refers, as it does in, in many passages in the New Testament, it refers to the thinking and here it would be in relationship to the conscience in the soul. If we are not condemned by our conscience, indicating that we are out of fellowship, that we have sinned, that we have that our fellowship with God has been broken, that is, if we recognize that we are still in fellowship, that is, still enjoying fellowship with Him, still walking by the Spirit, still abiding in Christ, then we have confidence before God. So once again, we see that confidence is related to abiding in Him. Again, we find the word in 1 John 4, verse 17, where we read, By this, love is perfected, that is, love is brought to completion with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in the world. Now, in the context of 1 John 417, if we go back and look at the previous verse, we see that the word abide is used twice. We have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So there is the emphasis that in this abiding relationship, love is matured or brought to completion. And the result of that matured love, reaching spiritual maturity, is that we can have confidence in the future in the day of judgment. Now, if we can have confidence in the future in the day of judgment because we've hit spiritual maturity, then the conclusion from that is we can also have confidence today. That's the point I want to make here. The conclusion from 1 John 4.17 is that if we can have confidence at the day of judgment because we've reached spiritual maturity, then we can have confidence today if we've reached spiritual maturity. Now, how, what's the sign of that? The sign of that, as John explains in 1 John 4, 17 to 21, is our personal love for God the Father as the motivator in life, and secondly, our impersonal love and unconditional love for other believers our impersonal and unconditional love for other believers by fulfilling the the mandate to love our brothers, that is, other believers in Christ. So when we take these three verses together, where confidence has been mentioned by John, then we recognize that to have the kind of confidence that he's talking about in 1 John 5.14, it is the consequence of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. The baby believer cannot have this kind of confidence. He may have it for a moment or two, but it's not the same as the kind of confidence the mature believer has. So when we read in 1 John 14, this is the confidence that we have in him, a second phrase that leaps off the page to us is that phrase, in him. 
And as I have pointed out almost every time we run across that phrase in John, this is not a, a phrase that is the same as Paul's phrase, in Christ. Paul uses that phrase, in Christ, to speak of our positional union with him. That is a forensic union that occurs at the instant of salvation because of the baptism of God the Holy Spirit where we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That takes place according to, uh, at the point of salvation according to uh, Romans 6, 3 through 5. John uses the phrase in him to speak of that abiding relationship with Christ. In him is almost always used of at that relationship of fellowship, that relationship of, re, of ongoing rapport that takes place between the believer and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we could paraphrase this by stating, now this is the confidence that we have because we abide in him. We could insert that. He doesn't say that. I'm not add, I'm, I'm only adding that because the context of John and all of his writing indicates that that's the idea. This is the confidence that we have because we are, we have, uh, have been abiding in Him. So the confidence comes from a long-term relationship with Jesus Christ abiding in Him. Now to abide in Him, we have to be uh, if abiding in Him, let's tie this together logically. Let's put, let's try to connect the dots. If abiding in Him produces love for God, and if love for God is manifested by keeping His commandments, then keeping His commandments means we know His commandments and know the Word. So it takes us right back to the same principles I've been emphasizing all the way through this epistle, that we can't love God unless we know God. We have to make the knowledge of God's Word and a study of His Word a priority in our lives. This isn't something that just happens overnight. It doesn't happen by just showing up at church once a week or even twice a week. This is a priority in our lives to learn the Word of God. This means we have to go through a process of inculcation where we are exchanging a uh, human viewpoint in our soul for divine viewpoint. Now, we have class twice on Sunday morning, and we have class on Wednesday night, and that provides us with a wealth of spiritual information. I have been here for four and a half years now. I know it doesn't seem that long. My, how time flies when you're having fun. But in that course of time, and many of you have been through that, you would probably be amazed, and I'm just repeating what people tell me here, you would be amazed at what you would learn if you were going back and listening to the John series again or listening to the Galatians series again or, or the introduction to the Old Testament. There's enough material there that you can get tapes and you can, you can listen to tapes every day on your way to work, on your way home, while you're doing housework, whatever your circumstances may be, so that you are constantly being exposed to the teaching of God's Word and letting that sift through your mind. There's nothing more important, especially for some of you that may be going through some difficulties. I know there are some who are going through some health testing. There are some who are going through financial testing, job testing, people testing, whatever it is. There is nothing more important for you. If you're going through any level of adversity, frankly, there's nothing more important, period, but especially if you're going through some level of adversity, to continuously, day in and day out, be reminded reminded of the grace of God and the provision of God. And so it's important to get tapes and to listen to them. In fact, I'm 
constantly being told by people who listen that they usually listen to tapes three or four times because I pack a lot in here. In fact, we got a tape order the other day. It was kind of fun. Somebody put a note in there and said, I'm Decided, I heard that I better get some doctrine from this church because you pack more doctrine on any tape than anybody else. <laughs> so apparently we're developing a reputation. But the point that I'm making is that you need to be listening to the Word day in and day out. And just because uh, we only have classes on Sunday morning and Wednesday night is no excuse for not not listening. That's why we have a grace policy on the tapes. And I know that many of you do supplement with tapes and listen to other things during the week and, and get the tapes from each Sunday and listen to them two or three times during the week. And I don't know whether that's just because I'm not clear. You have to listen to it five or six times to figure out what it is I'm saying or or uh, just what this what the situation is. But... We have to study the Word. That has to be a priority if we're going to get to the point where we can keep His commandments. Because that phrase, keep His commandments, is not, does not simply mean, well, I'm going to follow the Ten Commandments. See, when it's understanding all of the mandates of the New Testament, both the positive commands, concepts like pray without ceasing, as well as the prohibitions. And we have to be reminded of all of those things continuously so that we are walking by the Spirit in terms of God's plan, in terms of the protocol plan that God has laid down for believers in the church age. So we start by making the Word of God a priority as we learn all of the commands, all the prohibitions, and apply them. That is a sign that we are loving God. That is the only way you can know if you love God. If you go home from here and you think that you had some wonderful experience and that the singing was magnificent, well, you've got another problem there, don't you? We can't really use that illustration here. Now, if you had heard some of the singing that uh, that we heard when we were in California last week at the uh, at the WHW conference, I'm convinced that that if you're white and you like to sing, your only chance to sing in a choir is going to be on earth because they're not going to let you into any of those black choirs in heaven. That's for sure. I mean, it is just, we had some great, great music. And uh, and I, I'm almost convinced from my experience with uh, many of my friends now that I've made over the five years I've been working with WHW, that you almost have to be able to sing to be a pastor. I mean, some of these guys have incredible voices. Just incredible. So, so I guess that's why I'm white, because I can't sing, and so I couldn't be a pastor. <laughs> but I could be a pastor here, because we all feel right at home. But if you go to church and you go home feeling good about things and feeling wonderful and that you had a close experience with God that morning and that you really love God, uh, that doesn't mean anything. The Word of God says that you know that you love God because you keep His commandments, not because you had some wonderful experience with God and you feel closer to Him. There's only one barometer for uh, loving God, and that is keeping His commandments. And to keep His commandments, you have to know His commandments. To know His commandments, you have to be disciplined in the study of His Word. It doesn't just happen by osmosis. So John begins by reminding us that if we want to have confidence in our prayer life, then that begins with a long-term process of spiritual growth and abiding in Christ and walking by means of the Spirit. So that's the uh, thrust of the first clause. Now, this is the confidence 
or and this is the confidence that we have because we abide in him. And then we have an explanation. Then we have an explanatory clause. In the Greek, it is a, the hati clause, which is technically called an exegetical clause because it is explaining something. We, it is explaining the concept of confidence. What, in what area do we have confidence? And that is in the area of prayer. If we ask anything according to his will. And here we have the particle aeon plus the uh, aorist uh, subjunctive, or excuse me, the, you know, the aorist active subjunctive of uh, iteo, which means to ask, uh, to ask or to make a request that uh, we, this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything. Now, here's the clause here. According to his will, kata plus the uh, accusative indicates according to a standard. See, we're right back to knowing his will. How do you know God's will? Only by knowing his word. You don't know God's will in the church age through some sort of subjective impression or feeling. There are far too many people who try to make decisions in their life based on God's will, and they pray to God until they get the rosy glow or liver quiver or something that gives them some sort of inner peace. That's the that's the uh, most common form is I'll pray until I have a peace about it, and then I'll know what God wants me to do. God does not operate that way in the church age. That is never explained in the Scripture. People in all kinds of false religions have all kinds of inner experiences. I'll never forget the time that I was uh, uh, up at uh, Palmyra, New York. If you ever get a chance, it will be an educational experience to go up there. That is the birthplace of Joseph Smith, who's the founder of the uh, Mormon Church. And it was there that uh, the angel, so-called, alleged angel of called Moroni, appeared to Joseph Smith, gave him the uh, tablets that he was to translate through the magic spectacles. He put on his magic glasses that he got somewhere, the angel gave him, so he could translate the, the, uh, the tablets into the Book of Mormon. And there was this uh, little uh, elderly man who was my guide, and he was taking me through, and he was from Georgia. Of course, if you're a Mormon, you have to work your way to heaven, so you have to spend at least two years at some point in your life as a missionary. So that's what he was doing. And he had grown up, and I was asking him questions about his background, and he had grown up as a Southern Baptist. Now, Southern Baptist, best-kept secret, is that the greatest mission field, the greatest mission, successful mission field, for Mormons is the Southern Baptist denomination. That means they get the majority of the, the, the one group from whom they get the, the largest number of converts are from the Southern Baptist Convention. That's probably because they don't teach them anything. So they don't know any better. And this guy said, well, I just, after the Mormon missionary came to me and explained to me what, more, what Mormons believed, then I had the burning in my bosom and I knew it was true. See, that's the phrase they use for the rosy glow. You know, they just, this inner confidence, this subjective impression. Of course, that didn't mean anything because Mormonism is completely false and it's a heretical, uh, really a heretical or distorted view of Christianity because of its heretical views of Jesus Christ and its heretical views of God. 
But that's a different subject. The point I'm making is that subjective impressions are no guarantee of divine guidance. And uh, sometimes what God wants you to do is going to put a little fear and trepidation into your stomach as opposed to what what uh, you want to do. And sometimes people have a greater sense of inner peace by doing what they want to do and avoiding God's will. I think uh, uh, Jonah really didn't want to go to Nineveh. And uh, he probably had a great sense of inner peace when he decided to go uh, hop that ship to Tarshish. It wasn't until he met the fish. By the way, when they come out with this VeggieTales movie and they're advertising it as a whale, remember the Bible doesn't say it was a whale. Whales do not have throats large enough to swallow human beings. It was a large fish, and there are a number of different fish that are large enough to swallow human beings. And there are incidences in... Uh, uh, in recorded history, where uh, fishermen have been swallowed alive by various large fish and then have been rescued and taken out. And the interesting thing is after you spend a little while in the stomach of a fish where all of that acid eats away at you, you uh, you're bleached white and you're quite a sight. So that was probably true about Jonah when he showed up in Nineveh is this guy really looked odd. And that got everybody's attention. Well, we don't want to get off into Jonah this morning. The point is that our confidence, the way we know that we are asking according to God's will, is not through some subjective impression, but because of our knowledge of his word. And because we know his word, we know his will. And so the requests that we make are going to be requests that are consistent with the word of God. So this is clearly talking about the kind of prayer life that is experienced only by a mature believer. You can't take this promise and then go home and treat it like it's uh, Aladdin's magic lamp and that if you uh you know rub the uh lamp of 1 John 5:14 and ask God for a a new beamer or a new job or a wife or a husband or or to turn your wife or your husband into prince or princess charming that that's going to happen that is not what this is talking about this isn't uh, a wish list for for a uh, Santa-like God to answer every hope that you have. This is informing you that if you want to have a real, genuine, biblically-based prayer life where uh, God answers your prayers, then you better get serious about your spiritual growth and spiritual advance to maturity because when you get there, then you will understand how to pray, what you should pray for, and you will be asking for the kinds of things that God will answer. This is a, the confidence, the certainty that we have, the boldness that we have in him so we can pray bold prayers because we understand what his will is. This is the confidence that we have in him that if, and that's a third-class condition, maybe you will and maybe you will not, but here he is taking it from the viewpoint that you might, may or may not, but you probably will ask anything according to his will, then he hears us, and then he's going to build his logic from there. In verse 15, if we know that he hears us, and if we know that he hears us, third-class condition, if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Now, the reason this is a third-class condition is because it is building upon the previous scenario. And if that doesn't take place, then this won't take place either. 
if we know that he hears us. And the idea is that if we are asking according to his will, he hears us, and therefore we can know for certain that he hears us because we've been asking according to his will. Therefore, whatever we ask, we know. We know with certainty, and here we have the present uh, metal subjunctive of the Greek verb oida, which has to do with a knowledge from a base of doctrine in the soul. It is because there is a solid foundation of doctrine in the soul that we can know that we have the petitions, that is, the requests that we have asked of him. Now, when we come to um, that last clause of him is translated as if, Uh, there's a textual problem there. In your New American Standards, it has the phrase of him. But actually, the better reading, which is in a majority of manuscripts, as well as several of the older manuscripts, is the preposition pros, which means face-to-face communication and has to do with um, the, the, the portrayal that, that Paul has, I mean, that John has already set up that the confidence that we have in him is also the preposition pros and uh, means face-to-face with him. So we can have confidence because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now this brings us to the doctrine of prayer, so let's take some time to review about eight key points on the doctrine of prayer. What is prayer? So many people have erroneous concepts of prayer. Some people come out of a background of mysticism where they think it's just sort of silent meditation. Some people get the idea that it's just uh, presenting a Christmas list to God that God will automatically uh, answer. Uh, But we have to build our concept of prayer from the Scriptures. Prayer is that grace provision of the royal priesthood. The grace provision of the royal priesthood whereby the church-age believer has access and privilege to communicate directly with God. It is, in essence, communication with God. It's the grace provision of the royal priesthood, whereby the church-age believer has access and privilege to communicate directly with God. Remember, in the Old Testament, not every Old Testament believer was a priest. The priesthood in previous dispensations is restricted either according to family, according to position in the family, for example, the patriarchal priesthood, or according to, um, in the Mosaic law, the Levitical priesthood. And so only priests had that kind of direct access to God. But in the church age, every believer is a royal priest and has direct access to God. So the first part of the definition gives us that explanation of its position and relationship to our royal priesthood. Then the definition goes on to read, The purpose of this communication is to acknowledge our sin, express adoration and praise to God, give thanks, that is to express gratitude, which is a barometer for our grace orientation, intercede for others, and to convey our personal needs petitions and to conduct intimate conversations with God. Prayer is communication. It is communication and having a conversation with God. It has several different elements, as we will see in our final point, and it can relate to any of these purposes individually or all of them together, to acknowledge our sin, express adoration and praise to God, 
give thanks, intercede for others, and to convey our personal needs, petitions, and to conduct intimate conversations with God. That's our basic definition of prayer. Prayer is not emptying your mind of whatever it is you're thinking. Prayer is not just going to God. Uh, Prayer is an ongoing communication with God, and it involves several different elements, but it's all based on grace. It is all based on grace. It is not based on who you are or what you have done. Every believer has the privilege of prayer and direct communication to God the Father. Second point, prayer can be private or public. There's different kinds of prayer and different approaches to prayer. Public prayers can be divided into prayer meetings, and prayer meetings are important, and there's an important role for group prayer and the prayer of the body of Christ and the prayer of a local church. That's why we have prayer meeting on Wednesday night, which uh, a lot of people don't attend, but it is important. There's always been an emphasis on group and corporate prayer throughout the New Testament. We have prayer meeting at 7 o'clock on Wednesday night, and this is important. It's not something that's secondary. It always amazes me, though. There are some people who are embarrassed to pray in a group. And I understand how that began. There are many people who are very shy. Many people, studies seem to indicate that the greatest fear most people have is being uh, singled out or speaking in front of a group, something like that. However, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're motivated to not do something because of fear or anxiety, then that's a false motivation and a sinful motivation. Prayer is something that is important. It's part of your priesthood and part of your responsibility as a member of the body of Christ. This is not something that is just uh, optional or something that just uh, some churches do. Prayer meeting is is an important function of a local church where the body of believers get together and pray for one another and pray for the needs of the church. So you have public prayer meetings uh as well as public prayers for specific functions. Uh, frequently, if you are a believer or if you are actively involved in a local church ministry, then your family members who may not be uh, recognize that. And so guess who gets tapped to say grace at Christmas or Thanksgiving or any of those family functions because somehow they think that you have a closer track with God, and you probably do. But... When you have prayers for specific functions, and sometimes if you're, uh, depending on the kind of job you have, you may get an opportunity and some uh, public function to give an invocation. Things like that are a little less uh, common today than they were 40 or 50 years ago, but uh, they still happen on occasion, and you'll be tapped to, uh, somebody may ask you to give an invocation. Remember the principle of sticking to the point. The point of getting up in front of a group is not to uh, evangelize everybody in the group. It is not to present a uh, four-point gospel witness to everybody while you have a captive audience and everybody has their head bowed and their eyes closed. It's not to uh, present a diatribe against the uh, uh, family uh, religious uh, distortion or whatever it might be. It is to uh, give thanks for the food. So give thanks for the food and say amen and sit down. Don't 
stretch it out. If it is an introduction to something, you can throw in a good one-liner here or there. I'll never forget the story of Pastor Theme back in the old days when uh, you got a chance to give invocations at football games. Uh, he was asked to um, give the invocation at a football game at Rice University. It may have been Rice Institute back in those days. But um, he was to give the invocation, and they told him, they said, now, we don't want you to offend anybody, so, so don't, don't mention Jesus Christ. So he gave a rousing good uh, invocation for the game and, and uh, prayed that God would give uh, everybody the courage to hit hard and uh, you know, defeat the opposing team and that nobody would be weak. And he went on in that vein for a while that just sort of woke everybody up. And then he closed in the name of, of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the only Savior who died on the cross for all of our sins and uh, the shepherd of our souls and the great shepherd of the sheep and, and went on invoking almost every title of Jesus Christ in the Scriptures for about five minutes without mentioning the name of Jesus Christ and then concluded. So, you know, there's all kinds of ways around some of these things, but... Prayer can be private or public. Public prayers are prayer meetings where you can pray. And prayer meetings, now there are different ways that people pray in prayer meetings, but too often what happens when you see a public prayer, meet, or a prayer meeting at church is everybody prays for the same thing, which is redundant and probably, and God probably yawning up there. Um, what you have is five or six people praying a prayer. Think of it that way. So that you pray for different things. One person takes one area like missionaries. Another person takes another area like the church. Another person takes another area such as, as those who are sick or those who are dealing with various problems in the church or specific prayer requests. We categorize our prayer list where each person takes a different area and prays for that. So that the totality of the group prayer covers everything and not everybody praying for everything in a redundant manner. You know, think in terms of communication with God and think a little bit. When you get involved in group prayer, here's a, here's a little assignment. Think about what you are saying and how it sounds. I remember one, when I was working as a camp counselor, I remember one high school kid, every other word that he said was Lord. Lord, we ask you, Lord, if you would please, Lord, help us uh, today, Lord. And we ask also, Lord, for those who are sick, Lord, you don't talk like that to anybody you know. You don't. If you're in a conversation with Jim or John or Bill, you don't say, Bill, would you please, Bill, today, Bill, would you uh, help me or pick me up this morning, Bill? You know, think about how you talk to God, and please don't bore God to death. Good night. It's just amazing the kinds of the kinds of things people slip into, and some of it's just bad habits. Some of it are habits we pick up from other people that we've heard pray, and and you always get the the holier than thou crowd that about every other word they want to say, praise you, Lord, and and uh, it's a conversation. That's the point I'm making. And think about what you were saying in terms of a conversation with another person, because you are communicating and conversing with God. And would you communicate and converse with uh, someone else, another human being, the same way you are expressing yourself in that prayer? And uh, just if that applies to you, then think about that for a while. Uh, use your public prayers, if it's a special occasion, as 
uh, as a target prayer, specifically for whatever the function is. And if you want to say something about the gospel or slip it in, do so in one or two sentences, but make it crisp and clean and don't uh, run the risk of boring all of your relatives to death with a five-minute exposition of uh, John chapter 3 while you're praying for the Christmas meal. Jesus warns about this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. He says, When you pray, you are not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. Your your real rich prayers are not the prayers you're going to pray in front of people or before people. It's your prayer life in private, not a public function. Third point, today we must not confuse prayer with any mystical notions that are popular today. Mysticism is the greatest danger to biblical Christianity today. It is the the, uh, warp and woof of our culture. And in mysticism, spirituality is defined totally by subjective terms and emotion. Mysticism entices many of undiscerning people with empty promises of a deeper, more meaningful spirituality. Mystics, under the delusion of achieving a closer union or a personal encounter with God, often claim that God speaks directly to them or that God, angels, or divine beings have appeared to them. This is a false spirituality that is completely divorced from the objective communication which we have in the Word of God. But perhaps one of the greatest uh, problems in mysticism is expressed through the charismatic or Pentecostal movement today, and this is addressed in a prayer passage in Matthew 6-7. Often you'll hear charismatics or Pentecostals say, well, it's a prayer language as if God needs a special language in order to uh, understand your prayer requests a, a little more clearly. Matthew 6, 7 states, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Now, the way most people read that is just don't, don't get involved in some sort of ritualistic prayer where you're repeating the same phrase over and over again. And that, of course, has some uh, benefit in terms of application. But actually, the, the Greek word used to uh, you, you, you use that is translated meaningless repetition is the Greek word bata logai, or bata logia, which means to utter senseless sounds or to speak indistinctly and incoherently or to babble incoherently. See, this isn't talking about saying the same phrase like, thank you, Lord, or praise you, Lord, over and over again. This is talking about uttering senseless sounds or speaking in an indistinct or incoherent manner or to just babble. And that's exactly what glossolalia is in the church age. That's exactly what is going on in so many of these uh, in Pentecostal and charismatic churches where people have been taught that there's a, some special prayer language and if you can speak in tongues then you'll have a, a richer prayer life with God. It's a direct violation of the verbiage in Matthew 6, 7. Fourth point on prayer is you do not pray to be spiritual but because you are spiritual. 
Your prayer life is a consequence of your spiritual growth. It does not produce spiritual growth. Prayer is a privilege of your priesthood. You get all your priesthood privileges at the instant of salvation. But you must develop and grow spiritually for your prayer life to be efficacious. That's the point of these two verses. Your prayer life is no stronger than your spiritual life. You see, at the point of salvation, every believer becomes both a royal priest and a royal ambassador for Christ. The priesthood affects our service to God, and the and our ambassadorship is our ministry to mankind. The priesthood is relates to our service to God, and the ambassadorship relates to our ministry to mankind. So priesthood is vertical, and ambassadorship is horizontal. The royal priesthood, we have to understand that in the past that there are different priesthoods. We have the patriarchal priesthood prior to Noah we, and uh, prior to the Mosaic Law. You had the priesthood, the, the royal priesthood of Melchizedek, the Levitical priesthood under the Mosaic Law. Most believers prior to the cross were not priests. Therefore, they did not have direct access to God. But in the church age, every believer is a priest unto God from the instant of salvation. First Peter chapter 2 verse 5 and verse 9 and Revelation 1 6. In the church age, every believer is a priest unto God. You don't have some class of people, some liturgical class of individuals that you go through. First Timothy chapter 2. Uh, verse 5 says, for there is one God, I think it's verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. One mediator, not a, there's not a priesthood to go through and there's not a mediatrix, Mary, to go through. You do not pray to Mary to somehow enhance your own personal prayer life. First Timothy makes it clear, I think it's verse 7. First Timothy, I'll have to look, I'm gonna look that up. First Timothy chapter 2 makes it very clear. Verse 3, verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man. There is no intermediary. You do not have to confess your sins to a priesthood or to a mediatrix such as Mary. You just have direct access to God, according to Hebrews 4, 15, and 16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Jesus Christ is our high priest, and because he is our high priest, we have direct access and confidence to go in prayer, the same emphasis that John has. So priesthood, our royal priesthood, operates in the realm of Bible study and prayer, our direct access to God. On the other hand, at the instant of salvation, we are also made royal ambassadors. In the human realm, an ambassador is a high-ranking official that is sent by his government to another government or nation to represent his government to that nation. As spiritual ambassadors, we represent the Lord Jesus Christ to Satan's kingdom, this earth. We are sent from the throne room of God, as it were, to this world to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. Ambassadorship relates to every single believer. Every believer is an ambassador at the instant of salvation. Therefore, every believer from the instant of salvation is a, is in full-time Christian service. And just as ambassadors 
are supported by their government when they're living in another another kingdom. So we are supported by our government. God supports us through logistical grace and surpassing grace or greater grace blessings. God always supports us so that we can fulfill the tasks that he gives us, and he supports us to the level that is necessary. Now, the function of the ambassador is in the realm of Christian service. Priesthood relates to God. Ambassadorship relates to other people. So we function in the realm of Christian service. We are to function in the realm of giving. That's part of our ambassadorship. We operate in the realm of spiritual gifts and evangelism. That's not our spiritual life. Our, our, our ability, our effectiveness in these areas is going to grow and develop as we grow spiritually. But they are part of something given to us at the instant of salvation, and that is our ambassadorship. Christian service. Too often you run into churches where Christian service is seen as a means of spirituality. So the first thing they want you to do is get you teaching Sunday school or ushering or doing something like that. Giving. Giving is often distorted. But the problem that we have in too many doctrinal churches and and too many Bible churches, we're so afraid that somebody's going to think that we're trying to manipulate you and make you guilty about giving that we go too far the other way and we almost ignore it or deny. I know it's one of the one thing that I hate talking about is giving, but one of the things that I have been uh, impressed with as I have had more and more ministry in uh, many of the uh, black churches that I've gone to is the tremendous level of giving that's there. Now, I recognize that in some of the churches there's a lot of manipulation, there's too much discussion about money, and there's, uh, there, there's in some places there's a lot of talk about tithing, which is for the Old Testament and not the New Testament. But that doesn't negate the fact that giving is a responsibility for every believer. I was uh, sitting down, I'm going to convict you on this this morning. You've got to think about this. This is a challenge. I was talking with a pastor who's from an area in Houston that is not exactly a professional upper-middle-class area. In fact, I would say the median income in this church is far superior to the median income in that church. And we were talking, and he was explaining the fact that they were building a building. And I said, well, what's your, how, how large is your church? And he said, well, we have 70 adults and 90 kids. Now, we have, if you look at our phone tree, we have a little more than 70 adults, but we don't have 90 kids. That means they have more kids putting a drain on the finances of the, their adults than we do. I said, um, what's your budget? 230000 a year. That church, which is like our church, is taking in three to four times more money than we are, and they don't have the resources that we have. Now, if that doesn't make you feel a little convicted and guilty, I don't know what will. I mean, that every time I am around uh, some of these churches, I am just amazed. The other thing that happened while I was in Southern California that relates to the same thing is, is that um, I spoke at a white church, and I was paid an honorarium at that white church, which is very, uh, unfortunately pretty standard for an honorarium at white churches. I'm normally paid seven or eight times that amount when I speak on a Sunday morning at a black church. They are extremely giving and appreciative of the Word of God. And what I was paid by that white church was the same thing I was paid by a white church when I preached my first sermon and didn't know anything in 1978. 
I think there's been a little inflation since then. But it's just one, one of the things that is indicative of the fact that what, I've, what I'm discovering more and more as I go around the country is that people in white churches just aren't that appreciative of the Word of God anymore, and people in black churches are incredibly appreciative. I go out to the WHW conference every year, and since I started, I've brought in a couple of men that I know. And last year we brought in uh, Dr. Earl Rodmacher, who is the retired president of Western Conservative Baptist Theological Seminary. And Earl was so impressed with what was going on at WHW that he goes around the country talking about it. It's the greatest conference he's seen in 40 years. And he's telling people that he hasn't seen that kind of enthusiasm and excitement for Bible study and learning the Bible since the early 60s in, white, in the white community. When I get through teaching for an hour or two hours out there, I am usually flooded with 40 or 50 people standing around me with their Bibles open wanting to ask questions about this and that and the other thing, and I have to literally pull myself away after about 30 or 40 minutes. You can only give so much. I'd love to stay there and just answer questions all day long. I go speak at a white church. Everybody's out the back door. Nobody comes up and asks you a question. See, there's a relationship to what you put in the offering plate and your appreciation and gratitude for the Word of God. And we ought to take that seriously, and we ought to take a long, hard look between us and the Lord with how we, how we handle our money in relationship to the support of a local church. And I, it's been a while since I've brought this up, but we still have to solve the building problem at this church, whether it's building a new building, whether it's moving, whether it's tearing this down. We don't know until certain things get solved, which I'm not at liberty to talk about yet. But we're still going to need three or $400,000 to do whatever it is we're going to do, and this building isn't getting any better. And there's only us. This isn't going to come. God is not going to drop a treasure chest out of heaven through the roof. And it's our responsibility and it's our obligation. And what we're able to do with this church and this ministry is directly related to our appreciation for the teaching ministry that we get here. And that's part of our responsibility as believer priests. It involves Christian service. It ought to be another challenge and something a little bit convicting, too, is that we've had several needs in our prep school for teachers. We still have a need on Wednesday nights for a prep school teacher for a couple of different age groups. We've had a need for some prep school teachers, I think it's second hour, on Sunday morning. We have the preschoolers and the, I think it's the, what is it, fourth grade through pre, through kindergarten are now being taught by our young people. You know, 16-, 17-year-old kids are stepping to the plate to teach these kids because the adults won't do it. Now, you know, some of you are wearing five or six hats around here, and that doesn't apply to you. But others of you could be teaching, and nobody's responding. But we're getting 16- and 17-year-old kids in there to teach. Now, that says something about Christian service. You know, our kids are doing what the adults won't do. So we, this is all a function of our ambassadorship, operating in terms of spiritual gifts, witnessing. And I know there's a lot of people around here who are witnessing. I get to constantly get questions and uh, anecdotes from folks who are trying to witness to family members and people at work. All of this is a function of our ambassadorship. But prayer is a function of our priesthood. Now, the fifth point, prayer demands concentration and thought. 
Prayer demands concentration and thought, not emotion. While emotion may be present, it is not the focus or the issue. Prayer always relies on doctrine and biblical fact, not on emotion and subjectivity. The sixth point, as believers, our prayers fail because we fail in our spiritual lives. It succeeds because we succeed in our spiritual lives. If we don't understand the will and the plan of God, we will not have a successful prayer life. And point number seven, prayer should be the highest priority of your spiritual life next to learning Bible doctrine. First Thessalonians 5.17 tells us that we are to pray without ceasing. That means to pray continuously, habitually. We should be in an ongoing, continuous conversation with God. In John 15.7, Jesus said, If you abide in me, very similar to what John is saying here in 1 John 5.14, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then ask what you will, and it will be done unto you. But what keeps us from having a good prayer life is sin. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Psalm 66.18. Proverbs 15.29 says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Therefore, prayer includes four major elements. These are, first of all, confession. If we sin, we have to confess it or admit, acknowledge it to God. Secondly, it involves adoration. We are to praise God. We're to focus on who he is, his attributes, his character. That should lead us to thanksgiving, to recognize all that God has given us in his grace. The more we recognize all that God has given us in his grace, the more our problems and difficulties will become minimized. Once you start standing your problems up against the omnipotence of God, your problems will fail and your problems will fade away. Fourth, it involves petition. Petition has two categories, intercession for others and prayer for oneself. We are to pray for one another as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we come to our passage in 1 John 5, 14 and 15, what we discover is a fantastic prayer promise that if we ask, if we are abiding in Him, if we are walking by means of the Spirit, then we can have confidence in our prayers that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. But to get to that point, we have to grow and mature as believers. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Once again, we are reminded of your grace that began at the cross where Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all of our sins, that our spiritual life, our, our prayer life, it's not based on who we are or what we've done, but it's based on Jesus Christ. The issue is our understanding of your word. The issue is our uh, spiritual growth and maturity abiding in Christ. Father, we pray for anyone here this morning that is unsure of their uh, salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny. We pray that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Scriptures teach that the only issue is faith in Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin in human history. There is no sin that you can commit or that I can commit that is too great for the grace of God, that was unknown by the omniscience of God, and that was not dealt with on the cross. 
So the issue now is what you are trusting for your salvation. If you put your faith alone in Christ alone, we have the promise of God that from that instant we have a secure and certain salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning, that uh, the Holy Spirit would make them real to us, and that we would have the courage to apply them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.